0: Talk to your local agent today.
1: It is simply not the case that in the course of American history, nonviolent protest has been met with open arms and been applauded by the powers that be. People forget that, that, that King got stoned in Cicero. He was hated by white people all through the country. He was hated at the very highest levels of law enforcement in this country by J. Edgar Hoover.
2: Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Here's the thought I can't put down right now. What if there had been no video? What if the world hadn't been able to see the last eight minutes and 46 seconds of George Floyd's life? Something I wish we never had to see. Maybe it's not even a question. We, we, we know what would have happened, right? Nothing. We would have been told he resisted arrest, the police had feared for their lives, a man who may or may not have passed off a $20 counterfeit bill, deserve to die at the hands of the state, that there was no other choice. In economics, monopolies are understood as a bad thing. We, we we fear monopolies because monopolists use their power unjustly, unfairly. They use it on behalf of themselves and against us. The state, in theory, has a monopoly on violence. And it often uses that monopoly for itself and against the very people it is supposed to protect and to serve. George Floyd's death is in part the result of that. It is the result of a state whose relationship with violence, the result of state officials whose belief in their justification to inflict violence, is completely out of control. My guest today is Tanasi Kotz, author of Between the World and Me, which, if it's one of those books that You know, it's all around you, so you haven't read it. Now now is the time to fix that. But one thing I I love about Coates' work is the way he sees and gets others to see structures and stories that have stood for so long. They've passed into a kind of gray invisibility. And one of those structures is the state's use of an attitude towards violence. There's a lot in this conversation. There's more hope in it than I expected. You'll hear that right from the beginning. But the part I keep thinking about is The part about nonviolence, what would it mean to imagine a state whose core competency wasn't violence, but nonviolence? What would it mean if instead of demanding protesters and grieving family members followed the tenets of nonviolence, we demanded those in power followed it? Not in its sanitized, fluffy way that you learn it in, in school, but in what it really meant by the people who actually practiced it. As always, my email is ezra dot Vox.com. Here is Tanahasi Coates. Tanahasi Coates, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Ezra. So what do
2: you what do you see right now?
1: Oh, um, I can't believe I'm gonna say this, but uh I see hope and I see progress uh, right now at, at this moment. Um You know, I had an interesting call uh, on Saturday uh, with my dad. And, you know, my dad, born in 1946, grew up in, you know, just just dirt poor in Philadelphia, lived on a truck, went off to Vietnam, came back, joined the the Panther Party, um, and was in Baltimore uh, for the 1968 riots, would have been about 22 at that that time, Vietnam vet. And I, I asked him if he could, for me, compare what he saw in 1968 to what he was seeing now. Um, And what he said to me was, there was no comparison. And actually, that this is much more sophisticated. And I said, well, well, what do you mean? He said, it it would have been like if somebody from the turn of the 19th to the 20th century could see the March on Washington. By which he meant the idea that Black folks in their uh, uh, struggle... Uh, against the way the law is enforced in, in, in their neighborhoods, which, you know, was so crystallized in, in the killing of, and in, in really the, the, the killing by torture uh, publicly of George Floyd. The idea that that would resonate with white folks in Des Moines, Iowa, that it would resonate in Salt Lake City, that it would resonate in Berlin, that it would resonate in London, it was unfathomable to him. In 68, it was mostly black folks uh, in their own communities registering their uh, great anger and, and, and great pain. And I don't, I don't want to you know, overstate this and be too Pollyanna-ish, but I think it suffice to say that um, there are significant swaths of people in communities that are not black that at least to some extent have some perception of, of, of what that pain and that, that suffering is. And I think that's different.
2: And so part of that, you you think there is sort of more multi ethnic solidarity today than there was then.
1: I do. I do. I do. And it, it just it just would almost have to be, you know, uh uh the case. You know, um, I you know, I honestly I I think people have to, you know, I've always been big on, on symbols and, and art and narratives and, and the stories we tell. And, you know, I, I gotta say, certainly within my lifetime, I, I don't know that there's been a more effective movement than than Black Lives Matter. Uh, now, granted, they were very much aided by, by technology, but in bringing the kind of ridiculousness, you know, that, that black folks deal with on, on, on a daily basis in the policing in their, in their communities. And, and I, I have to say, you know, you really got to get that, that George Floyd is not new. That video is new. The ability to, to broadcast it, the way it was broadcasted is, is new. But black folks have known things like that, you know, were going on in their community, in their families for a very, very long time. And so I, I just think, you, you, you know, you have a generation of people who are out in the streets right now, you know, many of whom like only have the vaguest memory of George Bush. Like remember George Bush the way I remember, I shouldn't say the Vegas, but remember him the way I remember Carter, you know, or maybe Reagan at, at best. But, you know, first real president who they actually grappled with was a black dude. That, that's a different type of, you know, consciousness. You know, it's a different, you know, type of, I think, um, not just white person, but person who is not black. You know, in the world uh, uh, today.
2: I had this question I knew that I was going to ask you about sort of the lineage here where Black Lives Matter and these kinds of protests and these kinds of videos, it, it doesn't begin under Trump. It begins under Obama. But I almost now want to reverse that here in what you just said. Do you think there's a way in which it's actually helpful that Donald Trump is a president right now? It like it sort of decomplicates the situation?
1: no, no. No, I I think it's enormously harmful, Ezra, because I think you know um, one of the things that 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 people forget and look, o- Obama did you know a lot of things obviously that you know we can you know, disagree with and, and question, but probably the thing that I think about most that he really did successfully, I, I can't think of a presidency, maybe going all the way back to like Grant, that dealt with the way law enforcement deals in black communities than, you know, what Obama and to a great extent Eric Holder did. Um, The Ferguson report was historic uh, because the narrow way that, you know, politicians would have dealt with that, you know, before is to go in, you know, was the narrative true or not and then release a very, you know, sort of thin, you know, report. But the expansive way it, it... it did, you know, looking into the police department, basically revealing them, you know, to be, you know, little more than pirates coming into the black community and using the black community as a funding mechanism for, this, for the city government. The way we saw how that's, you know, not just true in Ferguson, but true across the country, uh, the consent decrees that they entered into, the, the very fact is, you know, I think it was John Chate who wrote this just yesterday, that the head of the FOP in Minnesota is a very vocal uh, uh, ally you know, to, to to Trump, who, you know, valorizes uh, uh, police brutality. I don't want to go so far as to say George Floyd might be alive today if Obama was president. But, you know, uh, 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 the prosecutor, Mike Freeman, stood up there on that, on that first day and he criticized, you know, Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore for bringing charges that ultimately didn't stick and didn't, you know, actually get the cops convicted. But, I, but you know, watching it, watching everything go down this weekend, what occurred to me was what happened in Baltimore was Marilyn Mosby brought the charges. That, you know, I can check the record, but my recollection is that was the last day of rioting. And it didn't spread nationally. Because although she didn't successfully prosecute the cops, the community had a sense that it had somebody who was representing them, uh, who actually was hearing them, who actually had their interests at heart. And, you know, I think, I think... It's worth grappling with why, for instance, the Eric Garner uh, protests didn't go, you know, the way this went. You know, uh why it was that, you know, uh Ferguson basically, you know, for the most part, stayed in Ferguson and could be dealt with the way, you know, it, it's dealt with. Now I think in in the, in the form of Trump and, and his allies, it's just a feeling that people won't be heard at all. And so this is what, you know, what you get.
2: I'm not I'm not gonna make this a Trump conversation, but I do wanna hang mm-hmm. on him for one second here. Mm-hmm. I was watching the speech he gave before um, tear-gassing the protesters um, in the park in D.C. Mm -hmm. And what so chilled me about that speech was how much he clearly wanted this. That, like, this was a presidency as he had always imagined it, like directing men with guns and shields to put down protesters so he could walk through a park unafraid and seem tough. And he's just, through this whole, through, actually his whole presidency, but certainly through coronavirus, he has seemed so ill at ease to me, just like so disinterested and annoyed by the actual work of being president. But like, this is the thing that he wanted, that he seems energized and excited by. And that's been the the, the scary part of it to me, that you have somebody in that role who is eager for escalation.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and that that to me is not. So, right, I mean, it's pretty clear that the war-making, you know, violent part you know, of head of state was always the part that that most appealed. You know, to to, to Donald Trump, but I, you know, even even in that, um, <sighs> look, I, I, you know, there's a lot of you know thinking, you know, back and forth: is this good? Is this bad? What what does this mean for for the election? I think it is significant and perhaps historic. Look, it, it may be true that Donald Trump will win. May, maybe this will, you know, lead to some sort of white backlash that you know ultimately sees him, you know, uh, ultimately helps him. I, you know, I can't really call that. But what I will say is. Um, this is a massive denial of legitimacy. Donald Trump may win the election in November, but he will be a ruler and not a president. Um, and, and I think that, that that those things need to be distinguished. Um, when all you have is force, when that when that's really all you have, and I mean like naked, open force, calling out the military, you know, to repress uh, protests that are, you know, national. National, and not just in like, not nationally just in ghettos and, and, and in hoods, but literally nationally in cities across the country. When that's all you have, there's a denial of, of actual legitimacy uh, to being governed in in that. I mean, he'll be a, a, you know, most likely, if he wins, someone who won with the minority of, 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 of the vote again. So two times, which will be a first in, in American history. And violence will be the tool by which, you know, he, he rules. I think it's a very, very different situation uh, uh to be in
2: yeah but it's a it's a scary gl- it's a scary one i mean i'm it glad is. you brought in that word legitimacy um i wrote this piece the other day called america at the breaking point and one of the things that i was sort of imagining in that piece is a little bit of what you're talking about here that the stakes keep going up right now like the like coronavirus is the entire country like locked in houses, like upset, angry, scared, right? There's no, like it is hard even to imagine yourself in the future, which is like the definition of a depressed person. I think we're in a very deep way, a, a kind of depressed country. And then you add on like a series of basically televised or or videoed lynchings. And then you have this election year. And in some ways, I'm more afraid of the situation you just described, that if Donald Trump is reelected in a way that does not feel legitimate to people, right, if if he loses by more votes than he did in 2016, which is but popular. wins or there's like a, a vote by mail kind of situation, like people forget. But before Twitter was hiding his stuff, his tweets over, you know, when the looting begins, the shooting begins, their confrontation began over his vote by mail tweets, which he's clearly trying. I don't know if he's right that vote by mail will help the Democrats. In some ways, I don't actually think he is, but he is— beginning to contest the structure of the election really early. And legitimacy crises are scary things. Uh, And I don't think we're real well equipped for one right now.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. But to me, like, I just look back historically, you know, um, the alternative to me is, again, you know, going back to this 1968 uh, comparison, wherein you had... (laughs) So let, let, I think we should, we should let, me, let me expand this out a little bit if I can for a moment. This might seem like a massive generalization, but I think I can say among, let's just say at the very least, a large swath to a majority of black people in this country, the police are illegitimate. They're, they're, they're illegitimate. They're, they're not um, seen as a force that necessarily causes crime to decline, causes violent crime to decline. Oftentimes you see black people resorting to the police because they have no other option. But they're not seen as the, the, the level of trust that I would say maybe Americans in other communities bestow upon the police. That, that's not, I mean, the very conversation, the very idea that black people or black parents have to have a quote unquote conversation, the very idea that the talk is a thing, speaks to the idea that the police are not legitimate to black people. Because the reasons why they have to have a talk. Um, are not you know reasons that you know we would have you know in any sort of world that that we want they're about force they're about the fact that you know uh you could be a victim to lethal force because you used a twenty dollar bill that may or may not have been counterfeit because you were asleep at night in your home and somebody got a warrant to kick down your door without knocking over pursuit of drugs for somebody that lives some ten miles away so that that has a you know and and that illegitimacy that black folks have always felt um, in their communities, I would argue, has been nationalized. And I don't know that everybody in America you know, feels that way. Um, but I think large swaths of Americans now feel, not even necessarily the police are illegitimate, but that Trump is the police. And that Trump is, you know, uh, they feel about Trump the way we feel about cops. You know, this is somebody that, that, that rules basically by power. I would prefer that situation, to 1968, where we're alone and we're in our you know little ghettos and we're in our neighborhoods and we know something about the world and we know what the police do, but other folks can't really see it and they can't really know it. And if they can, they're unsympathetic. I, I would prefer now. I don't like it. I just want to be. I don't like it. Um, but you know, the long when I when I think about it, this historically, you know, the, the long history of Black folks in this country is conflict, is struggle. You know, um, between ourselves you know, and and the state and other interests within the society um, so that we can, you know, live free. And this is like, again, you know, going back to my dad, like this is the first time that I think a lot of us have felt, wow, the battle is legitimately joined, you know, and and not just by, you know, white people, by, you know, other people of color, I mean, the demographics of this country and how it's changed, you know? When I hear that that, that brother in Minneapolis, you know, uh, talk about how his store was burned down, and him saying, let it burn. Lock those cops up. Let it burn. That's a that's a very, very different world. You know what I mean? It's a very, very different, you know, situation. It's not a great one. You know, it's not the one we want, but but the kind of peace of the conquered, you know, which is what it was in 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 68 and in previous years in, in this country. Um, I don't know, man. I, I I wouldn't prefer that.
2: On that 68 question, Chris Hayes had this tweet the other day where he said that, and I'm quoting him here, the two most flagrantly lawless presidents of the last 60 years have both been the most insistent on law and order, which shows how little it has to do with law and how much it's about maintaining a specific order. And, and I wanted to build on that idea with you. It, it seems to me We there we have this term we group it law and order but it seems to me that there is a lawlessness embedded in a certain kind of order and that we like put these two things together that's often opposed and and I'm curious what you think of that
1: yeah I think that's true and also there's also a a lack of order too actually
2: (laughs) yeah
3: you
1: know because you don't know what the cops are going to do and when they're going to do it you know there's actually just a total kind of uh, a a lack of peace and you know I I think in, in many times. You know, this, this this phrasing is used to, you know, cover up or, or to somehow legitimize or sanctify violence, you know, against people and not, you know, make it, you know, seem like the thuggishness that that, that it actually is.
2: Yeah, you, that, I think that point about the police is exactly where I wanted to go with this. It, like, you see the way this gets cyclical and self-reinforcing here really well. So police probably, I mean, they probably broke the law, certainly should have broken the law, certainly betrayed the fucking law. In, in killing George Floyd. And that unleashes protests, which, which break the order. And that then is used by a lot of conservative politicians. And I think guys like Tom Cotton have been pretty scary here in creating this justification for police to break the law again to impose this version of order, right? I mean, Tom Cotton talking about, like, using the military on American citizens, no quarter, right? Which is exactly how you don't treat citizens of your own country. And you just really see it. The way that order is used to justify lawlessness on behalf of the state and that like what people are disguising themselves behind is the fact that it doesn't look like lawlessness to a lot of folks as long as the state is doing it. It doesn't appear the same way as an anarchist in a black face mask throwing a brick. But, I mean, when you look at those videos of cops just casually turning rubber bullets on people who are filming them, who are posing no threat to them, like, that is just a crime. Like, it's nothing else.
1: Right. And, but, and I think one of the things that's probably changed over the, over the past five years is, I, you know, and again, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but I do think it started to look like lawlessness. I, I think the crucial moment in all of this, when we look back on this, is going to be when, when, when the Minneapolis uh, district attorney, Hennepin County, sorry, prosecutor stands up in the press conference and expresses some, I, I don't know what was going on with that press conference where they thought they were going to make an announcement and then didn't. But, you know, the prosecutor stands up and says, there might be reasons why this was not criminal. Okay. So if putting your knee on somebody's neck and torturing them to, them to death for eight minutes is not criminal, if that's not against the law, then there is no law and that was basically the, the, the conclusion that was, there's a kind of logic to it, you know what I mean, where, you know, like, like where law is sort of stated not as any sort of reflection of the world we want to live in, but as a reflection of how power is actually, uh, you know, are used and who can use it and when they can use it, the allocation of power. You know, and and so I think that, and and not just that. I mean, these are you know, you you have to put that on top of all the other video, on top of Walter Scott being shot in the back. You know, Eric Garner being you know choked, Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor. You know, uh, the door being kicked down, Sandra Bland, the cop telling her, "I'm gonna." There've been so many indisputable instances of outright criminality, and I'm saying what we will call criminality you know, uh, uh, subtracted from, you know, whether, you know, the law has ruled it or whether the society or whether the state has said it's criminal or not. But what we feel in our bones to be criminal, what we know if anybody else did, we would rule it as criminal. And even given, you know, the job that and the task that we put on police officers, still, you know, that's not something that, that we've liked to see. There have been so many cases that have been put in front of people that are not he say, she say, but just, you know, you can see it going down that I, I think, again, maybe not the majority, maybe not the the majority, but a critical mass of non-black people have come to see the enforcers of the state in a different kind of way. This is on top of all the conversation about mass incarceration in this country, having the largest prison population uh, in in the world by far, despite not having the largest population. All of this, I think, is is, is really, really coming together. And there's a certain number of people that I think were larger in the past that, that, that are seeing it. And I think that's what's at the root of this.
2: I mean, I I think that's really right. I want to talk about a piece of this that I am not sure I quite yet know how to talk about. But so we're going to try to tentatively walk through it. Because I want to talk about the way that rioting and disorder is getting used here. And part of the reason I I don't quite know how to talk about it is that I think there's like a language breakdown. When we talk about the police, the police are an institution. I mean, there are different institutions at different places maybe, but like you can call up the police, like you can find their address. And in terms of protests and particularly in terms of like there are people in protests who are rioting sometimes, people who are looting, they're just chaos tourists or people who are accelerationists. There's like a million things going on in disorder. And like you can't call up the head of it and ask like what people are doing and what the strategy is. And there is this way in which like what I see happening is is police trying to, and a kind of like a coalition in this country trying to hide the disorder created by brutal policing, in the disorder, the civil disorder that that policing gives rise to. And it's tricky because, like, I get why people are upset about rioting, and I like I've heard many of the protesters being really, really upset about, um, you know, looters coming in under their cover. But there's some way in which it seems to me that the police often operate symbiotically with the disorder they generate that is really it's just it's both dangerous and it's really frustrating
1: yeah i I think that's true and and I think one of the mistakes that that are made is um to view quote unquote rioting or uprising or how, like as um like as political strategy so it, it, like what you'll often see is this comparison between what's happening right now, what, what happened in Baltimore, what happened in Ferguson, let's say, you know, Martin Luther King uh, in Selma, for instance. And people will say, well, what, what, is, what is most effective? But that's not what we're what, what writing actually is. If you look at communities as, as, as communities of, of human beings, natural creatures who exist in the world, who tend to react a certain way um, when put under X number of pressures, I, I think it becomes a lot more sensible. What happens to a community of people who are policed arbitrarily? Uh, violence is, you know, tolerated against, against them—not just in the moment, but has historically been tolerated. Their grandfathers and grandmothers, their great-great grandfathers and grandmothers, can tell stories of, of 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 police officers either not stopping lynchings or jumping into lynchings. Their fathers and mothers can tell them stories of, of, of things actually happening, and then they experience it themselves and so they they have a, a kind of illegitimacy with law enforcement often see you know other figures within the community as more legitimate than actual cops the idea that cops you know just come in and escalate things and then you see like a video like that, and you know that could have been you and you know that could have been your son or it could have been your husband. What is the natural reaction? is it to form a committee and then, you know, present a a list of possible reforms? Is it, you know, actually, you know, what what we would call nonviolent protest? Well, we tried that. We tried that. That was Colin Kaepernick taking the knee. And he was driven out of his job and out of his profession, not just by the NFL, but by the president of the United States, chief law enforcement officer in the country, helped perpetrate a situation where he could not practice a craft that he had been training at since he was a child. What are, Okay, so so what is the natural reaction? You know, black people are human beings too. They get angry. They get sad. They get depressed. They have natural reactions to things. I mean, this is like um, you have a guy who, you know, has been eating poorly all his life, hasn't been exercising. And he has a heart attack and he's on the ground grasping at his heart. And we're yelling at the heart saying, heart, what are you doing? Heart, stop having a heart attack. It's insane. I mean, what did we think actually, you know, would happen? And I I know this is, you know, um, overstated, but I think it bears repeating that it was only weeks ago that we had armed white men showing up at the Michigan legislature, literally shutting the organs of democracy down. And we saw a very, very different reaction to that. Not just by the police, but, but, you know, by the White House and by how it was saw in the larger society. That wasn't the first time... You know, it happened. I'm thinking about the armed standoff at the Bundy Ranch, you know, um, where you have folks actually training guns on federal officers. And they retreated, you know? And so I I think at at the root of this is an inability to extend the kind of humanity that, that, you know, we extend to white people in this country uh, to people who, who are not white and specifically to black people.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before
2: You have this discussion um, in in between the world and me of about learning like over and over and over again in school about the civil rights movement and, and and nonviolence. And you have this line that I've been thinking about this week, where you write, "Why were they showing this to us? Why were only our heroes nonviolent?" And then you say that um, how could the schools valorize men and women whose values society actively scorned? And there's just something really. I think there's something pretty profound in that. It's I almost think it's like it's one thing to preach nonviolence if you yourself are nonviolent. Right. But it's another thing to preach nonviolence if it's only a basically unrealizable standard that you make other people meet. Yeah. In order to be taken seriously.
1: Yeah, I see I, like and I've even when I was writing Between the World and Me, and certainly uh more so since then, um, I have come to understand it and and come to believe in the deep moral case, you know, that, 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 you know, most effectively made by King for nonviolence, that you actually don't want to repeat what the people who are oppressing you are, are doing that when you do violence on, on, on to someone else, that there is something corrupting about it. You know, um, that, that's one thing that's a very, very true thing, but oftentimes, um, it is the very people who squelch nonviolent protests who then turn around and, 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 and talk to, the, you know, to folks when they take means that you know, we don't like and try to preach to them about nonviolence. I, I, let me add something to this too. It, it, it is simply not the case <laughs> that in the course of American history, nonviolent protest has been met with open arms and been applauded by the powers that be. People forget that, that, that King got stoned in Cicero. You know, they forget about the poll numbers where you see, you know, uh, uh, you know, they pretend like when King was leading, you know, these movements against Jim Crow and and, and, again, and against segregation, he was somehow the most popular man in the country. He was hated. He was hated by white people all through the country. He was hated at the very highest levels of law enforcement in this country by J. Edgar Hoover. And so, you know, who tried to get this man to actually commit suicide. And so, like, part of this is what is the reaction, not what is the reaction to nonviolence, in the midst of a riot, in the midst of a, of a Ferguson or a Minneapolis or, or, or Baltimore or wherever you are, what is the reaction to nonviolence when it happened? You know, there's a lot of talk about nonviolence. How many of these people stood up and said, yes, we really applaud the way that Colin Kaepernick is going about this struggle and the NFL is wrong to try to deprive him of you know, uh, uh, the right to make a living because they don't like what he's saying? How many people said that? You know how many of these people now, you know, who are talking about you know the effectiveness of nonviolence supported that or supported you know the 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 right to it to it the right you know the way it existed. It's always in the moment, you know, um, when you know folks try to hide behind this argument about means when in fact what they actually oppose is the argument itself.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's well put. It's weird, right before all this started, like when we were in coronavirus, but but before the videos began coming out, I was reading this. Book called the Radical King. It's a book of King's speeches because I've been trying to understand nonviolence better, like not as the thing I learned in school, but but is what it is. And the thing that I, you cannot get over, I cannot get over anyway, reading him, is what he asks of himself and others is just inhuman. I mean, it is amazing what he and others were able to do. But he has a sermon where he says, "Be assured, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer." He has this whole thing where he says that if the alternative to violence is if the alternative is cowardice, you're better off being violent. That nonviolence, like what you are committing to do, is unbelievably hard. He talks about like the way his father like would just cry seeing him leave, and like what it, how much it hurt him to know the fear that he was leaving his family under. And just reading it, you realize or you think like honor King for for everything he did, like a hundred percent and more. But you can't ask that of people. I, I really believe this, right? Like, the asks we make of people in politics have to be reasonable. A lot of people, like about half the country, routinely doesn't vote. Like, the idea that in order to have political change, you have to be willing to be beaten to death by police and never fight back. That you have to be willing to go to jail. <laughs> like, right. and and maybe ne- Like, it just, the ask has to be reasonable and it just seems to me so much so obvious on some level that the ask of police officers who are trained and empowered by the state to serve and protect do not murder people for no reason is a much more reasonable ask than in response to that everybody like who does not have any training and has been brought to the streets by rage and fear acts perfectly
1: yeah, you know, I, I, the thing is, I think we can ask it of ourselves. So I think King can ask it of, of his followers. I think, you know, I, I don't necessarily see the problem in him saying, "Look, this is a this is a better moral way." I, I get it. You know, I I totally get that. But when the state that is actively doing violence, or the actors, you know, or the people that support the state actively doing violence, then turn around, <laughs> see that now that's something different. That that's a very very cynical, you know, the de- the de- deployment of it, you know. Um, and and I think that that's the thing. And and once again, I just have to stress, I I don't think like what we're seeing is violence as strategy. This is rage, man. And and you have to, you know, add. Not just the videos, you know, that we were talking about earlier, not just all of these cases that, that, that we were talking about earlier, but you have Donald Trump in the White House. You have somebody who openly bragged about sexually assaulting people and then went on to become president, who, who was impeached, who has committed, you know, God knows how much follow, you know, a fired whistleblower has made a mockery of the idea of law and order. People over the weekend, they kept saying, why doesn't Trump come out and say something? What can Trump say? Trump is the guy with the knee on the throat, <laughs> you know, that, that's, you know, with his hand in his pocket. That's Trump. You know, there's, there's nothing that he can say to, you know, soothe people to bring the country because there's no presidential legitimacy. There's legitimacy amongst a, amongst a particular tribe of people and amongst a, a particular group um but there's nothing that you know he can say to do that you know work of healing or 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 or, or whatever you know um because his actions themselves you know have been uh, uh, so criminal on top of you know as i said you know the actions that we've seen from from the state it's it's a lot to ask of people it's a lot to ask
2: and, and there's not by the way nothing he wants to say of that 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 nature like that is the no. thing that always no. you could not have a man less suited to his moment but but mm-hmm. but i want to go back to what you're saying about um Nonviolence being preached by those who don't practice it. Because something that I've been thinking about as like a just even a challenge is what if instead of asking what it would mean for protesters to be nonviolent? And, and I'll say, like, I'm a nonviolent person, like I'm reading these books because like I want to practice this in my life. Like, what if we thought, and why don't we ever think about a nonviolent state? Right. Right? I mean, the, the core of nonviolence is this idea that you are going to allow pain and discomfort even unto death to be inflicted upon yourself. Mm. And as King says, like, forgive them 70 times 7, right? Forgive and forgive and forgive and turn your enemies into your friends by just simply never treating them as your enemies, at least not in the way that we often do through violence. And, like, if you imagine, like, the state in many ways could think about this, right? You could think about prison abolition. Right. You could have police who did not have guns. I just spoke to this cop, Patrick Skinner. He's a CIA agent for a decade overseas, and he's uh, in Savannah, Georgia now. And he he said he this great line where he said he, he does recruit training, and he always says, like, if you walk into the situation with your badge and your gun out, you're going to use at least one of them.
1: Mm. Don't mm.
2: walk in with them out. And if nonviolence is such a beautiful way of living, and I actually think it is, like we could imagine that for the state. And I think it's actually worth doing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's something yeah. you write about in Between the World and Me, but others write about too, is just like, it is the violence inflicted by the state that often creates then the, the the disorder, not just in terms of protests and riots, but actually just in terms of broken communities and crime. Then the state uses to justify more violence. Like the state could be responsible as well for breaking its own cycle and being more forgiving and trying to give people more and more and more chances.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think um, one of the, the the easiest ways to think about this, Josie Duffy writes had a had a Twitter thread. She was arguing that many people who think police abolition is crazy actually live in a world where the police have effectively been abolished already. That if they want to know how you build a world, what a world looks like without police, all they have to do is look, look, you know, around them. And she said, you know, you just, you know, ask yourself, you know, uh, are white folks who are of some privilege, do you generally have encounters with the police? How often do you see the police? you know? Um, and <laughs> the answer is, you know, very little, you know? Um, and so, you know, the retort to that is, well, what would we do about crime? What would we do about murder? Well, do police in particularly violent neighborhoods have a sterling record of solving and closing murder cases? Turns out they don't. Turns out they don't. And so if we're not you know, talking about solving crimes, um, and, you know, we, we know that we have examples of society where this isn't the case. You know, the rightful thing to do is say, well, what is it about these worlds where police basically don't exist that allows for that? And why can't we do that in the very communities that we say we need a heavy policing presence? You know, um, and that, I, you know, I know that's not, well, actually it is. It's directly tied to the idea of it. Like it's a practical way of thinking about nonviolence. How do you make those communities less violent? how do you do that you know and i think a lot of times people hear that language and they think you know we're off in fantasia land <laughs> somewhere when in fact they live at least to some degree in the very world that we're trying to build already it already exists it just don't exist for us you know um and 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 i thought that was just such a you know just a great way of making that thing tangible you know we um one of the problems is many times our politics and our political imagination is limited by our politicians. Um, and not even that the politicians necessarily do anything. But I think people who could do more to try to imagine a different political world oftentimes are obsessed with like the filibuster. Hey, And I'm not saying the filibuster isn't important. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's not my point. That's not my point at all. But I'm saying that there's one group of people who have to be concerned about that. But there's another group of people who also should think long term. What do we want? What are the guiding lights? You know, and I think those two things should not be confused. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm not saying don't be concerned about the filibuster. You <laughs> know what I'm saying? No, you I I, really I hear
2: I hear. Look, I feel like for a lot of my like last couple of years, not that my personal journey is in any way important here, but it's been you know, for a long time my work was primarily about like how do you make political change in politics? And in particular the last couple of years, and particularly as given where politics has gone, just saying, just trying to somehow be able to be inside and outside the system at the same time, like you need to make change inside politics and you need to make change, you need to change what politics can be, right? Which is a lot of why I think about not just a filibuster, but, but structural things, because I don't know, I think the hard thing is when these things come into collision, right? Like we're having this conversation here. Um, about questions of nonviolence and, and, and questions of, of unrest. And at the same time, like, what I know a lot of these people who worry about day-to-day politics are worrying about, what I know people who are trying to win win campaigns this year are worried about, is like, well, what if you do get that backlash, right? What if you do get people who are just afraid of disorder? And I'm actually not somebody at this point who thinks that any of this is going to be good for Trump, I think. Like, when Nixon ran in 68, he was not president, If what people want is normalcy, they're not dumb. They know Trump doesn't represent that. He represents a kind of chaos. A lot of people like what he represents because they feel his enemies are their enemies, and he will crush those enemies on their behalf. And they like that, and they vote for him knowing what it means. But you don't vote for Donald Trump because you want things to be calm. Like, people aren't that dumb. They just aren't. But there is this way in which, like, how do you keep the moment from destroying the long-term vision that i think is like a place where people get caught and i think often for me like i've gotten caught right in in my own work sometimes of just like how do you deal with the compromises you may need to make to help somebody tomorrow versus the um things you need to be fighting for saying speaking of such that you're like moving the the window for 20 or 30 years from now
1: yeah and i just think like you have to be clear about what you're doing you know um like i've always like when i think about my work I am not writing with the expectation necessarily that a politician running right now for national office is going to start talking like me. That You know, and that's probably not a good idea. But I also don't want... It's really surreal. Um, I'm having this interview with you right now, and I mean, like, I, where I live, like the 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 protests and everything—they've been right here, and I can I can like hear the horns outside, and the helicopter was just here, and everything—it's it, it's like right here. It's crazy. Um, what I'm saying is, I I think there needs to be a clear division. You know, I think it needs to be you know very very clear about people whose job it is to envision a different world. I, I don't know that Joe Biden needs to stand up and say abolish the police. I think the people around him need to read people who say abolish the police. And I think they need to be, you know, familiar with the argument and not dismissive of it and then figure out, you know, how they interpret that, how do they build, you know, that world in the in the small, you know, sort of pieces that they do right now. So it's not even so much that I I think folks need to talk like activists or talk like me or anything like that, you know. Um, but I think in an awareness of, of where people are and what position they're playing. And and I just think so often, you know, we very, very You know, and maybe I'm sensitive to this because I, you know, kind of went through it with with reparations, but because a thing can't be done right now, isn't doable right now, there's a feeling that it should not be talked about or or, or thought about, you know? And I just really want to distinguish how people, and maybe it's just like presidential elections distort everything, you know? Um, But I I really want to distinguish between how people whose job it is to bring together a broad coalition so that they can win an election, should speak. And people who are right as a and because I think those are two different things.
2: You, you and I were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago about ideas of the public. And and this is bringing it to mind for a very specific reason, because you, you made this great point when, when you were talking to me about it, that um, you could see the way the narrowed idea of the public, like the narrowed idea of what the government should be, how much it had dominated, not in terms of the republic, Republican Party which had like maybe believed in it but the Democratic Party which began to operate within that framework. And it's one reason to this that I think it's really important and powerful to try to like talk about and change values. I mean, I'm we're doing I think some pieces right now as we speak on on defunding police and trying to understand these these policy ideas, but it's also why I've it's why I was reading about nonviolence before this, actually. Um, and and it's why I think it's actually a really powerful value here because I think it is really worth imagining what if you built a state where... It's what, like, the philosophers say, right? The core thing of the state is its monopoly on violence. right? And when that's where you start with the idea of what a state mm. is, I get why you do, but mm. that's a very Hobbesian, mm. like, very right. grim version of it. If instead right. you began with the idea that, like... The point of the state is to instantiate and make possible like values of Mm nonviolence, values of Mm -hmm. flourishing, you might build something very different. And I don't even think we realize how deeply embedded that idea is. Like the point of the state is that the state gets to control violence. And so then, and to go back earlier in our conversation, when the state is inflicting violence, it often doesn't look like what it looks like when we see violence coming from somewhere else because it's normalized that the state does that. The death penalty is, of course, the ultimate example of this. But so is drones and the military. And it's not that... It's not that you don't need some of these things. Like, I really believe, like, ultimately the state is going to need a military because we don't live in a world where everybody is peaceful. But nevertheless, like, we strive towards values or we don't. And if the value we strive towards is a state has a monopoly on violence, which is, I think, the value America strives towards, that we want even a global monopoly on violence, we want our capacity to inflict violence above anyone else to be unbelievably unchallenged. Versus, like we are trying to build towards nonviolence, you get somewhere very different.
1: No, you're, you're you're right, and and I think I mean even if you say we're going to have a military, I mean it's a difference between valorizing fighting and war and a military and viewing it as a necessary evil. Almost um, like there, there's a difference, you know, between those two things. I've just been struck, you know, being here in New York. How much the only way people know how to talk about those folks who are doing what we consider essential work is through the language and rituals of war, um, the invocations of war, um, the 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 kind of you know seven o'clock salute that everybody does, which feels vaguely reminiscent of the thing that you know we were doing for a long time when we would clap for active duty, you know, military, and yet the inability to actually do things to protect these people. The inability to actually do things to make it so that you know, those you know, soldiers actually risk their lives less. It's deep in, a, in, a, in our bones, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that that's exactly right, you know? And this is like deep in the Western philosophy, right? Like when you were talking, I kept thinking about this notion that man is naturally in a state of war, right? <laughs> that's what's natural. That if you left us alone, what we would do is we would go and kill each other. And is that true? You know what I mean? Or is that just an assumption you know, that that we may, because if you proceed from that point, yeah, well, you need somebody with a monopoly on violence. You know what I mean? Maybe that is, maybe that's, you know, not true. Um, but I'm all here for <laughs> the conversation that says, wait, maybe we should start from somewhere else.
2: I just did this conversation that came out on on Monday with Rucker Bregman. And it's funny, it came out and over the weekend and on Friday, like the protests and the, the the violence really intensified. And I thought, well, like that conversation is just ill-timed. And, and and now i think it really wasn't so he wrote this mm. book called humankind and it's all about trying to argue that human beings are not naturally violent that we're actually mm. naturally friendly that we're a social species uh. and it's it's a it's an idea of like how you would build a society on this very different view of human nature and he's trying to prove it and one of the things that came out for me in the conversation is i don't I'm not sure I buy all of it in the sense particularly that I don't buy that humans have a nature. I think we have a lot of possible natures that can be brought out by different social structures around us. But something that he talks about in in, in there is like this idea of like non-complementary behavior that we're so used to the idea that um, if you do something to me, I should treat you that way in kind. And the right. state works like that. If you commit a, if you if you do something awful and violent, we will do something awful and violent back to you. Right. And I began to think that in his book, like what the question really was was, could we build society around non complementary behavior, in a way that that would bring out a different nature in us? Right. right. That if you know, because I see it with my kid. Like my, I, I hate to, all, I, I feel bad that I use this as an example, but I feel like it's the one that is close to a lot of our hearts. Like when an adult does something shitty to me. Like, I do something shitty back. I mean, try not mm-hmm. to, but but that's my impulse. And when my kid is having a rough day or being tough, like, I try to get calmer. I try to be mm-hmm. kinder. And my belief is that we'll bring something kinder out in him, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, that's going to bring out a different mm-hmm. nature in him. But if I escalate, he's just mm-hmm. going to cry harder. He's just going to mm-hmm. be madder.
3: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we,
2: like, lose this in our dealings with each other. But I, I think it's, like, such a great question of what if the state were built in a less complimentary way, I mean, just because like people keep using King quotes, and and I've been thinking about like what would happen if you applied this to the state. There's this one from him in the sermon where he says that like the nonviolent resistor would contend that in the struggle for human dignity, the oppressed people, of the world must not succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter or indulging in hate campaigns. To retaliate in kind would do nothing but intensify the existence of hate in the universe. Along the way of life, someone must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate. And I just think, like, what if you just replace the oppressed people in that mm-hmm. with the government? Like, the mm-hmm. governments of the right. world must not succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter or indulging in hate campaigns. Right. To retaliate and kind of do nothing but intensify the existence of hate in the universe. It's like, all, as you said, like, all these people preaching to everybody else to, like, read King. Like, a lot you of them Reed are in King. power. <laughs> right. yeah, like, yeah, you read right. King. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> no, you're, you're exactly right. And, and also, that there's a um, obviously, that there's a differential in power, too, right? Uh, because the people who are called on to be nonviolent are the people with the least amount of guns and the ability to do the least amount of damage, whereas we don't um you know call upon that you know for those who have the most power and actually can do the most damage so i i i i I think it would be a very, very powerful you know thing, but you know to 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 think of a world like that we are far from it right now, <laughs> you know in the midst of this with the president. That 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 we have, but you know, just you know, taking this back to the beginning, you know, in my own sense of optimism about the moment, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I feel like we're closer than we were in 1968. I feel like more people get it. I feel like more people understand it. Um, I, I you know, little things. I don't think a Democratic candidate could do Sister Soldier today. I just, I just don't think that like it's possible. I don't think Ricky Ray Rector is possible today. You know, I think we live in a very very different. Universe and and you know struggle is hard and you know it it involves moments like this that nobody's happy about or nobody's pleased with. Um, I don't like seeing you know uh, uh, people you know breaking windows or, or or doing whatever or doing you know what we call looting. But by the same token, I don't like seeing you know uh, uh, you know a government say in Ferguson looting its civilians. You know I don't like seeing a, a state. You know, wherein you know big business, you know, and big corporations in Wall Street, you know, is allowed to effectively, you know, loot people, you know, through the way that they design their home loans. So, you know, I I I I feel like it's always messy. It's always, you know, a a, a bit of a struggle. I think part of this is we have this really weird vision of like King and the '60s. Like, I, I King was always trying to keep people in line and keeping them from rioting. Whether you know he was in. You know, Memphis, mere days before he died, or if he was in Selma, you know, it was it was really hard, messy, you know, work, and it was always difficult. And so, like when I take the long view of it, you know, once again, man, I'd rather be here. I'd rather be here.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying.
2: borough.com slash box this is i know like a like a dorm room question but i actually (laughs) think dorm room questions are useful like what -hmm. do you you think the purpose of the state should
1: be wow (sighs) probably to spread as much happiness to as many people as possible or to enable as much happiness among as many people as possible probably that but that definition would probably get me into trouble, right? Um, because then one would say, "Well, what about if I had a five percent m- minority who I did, tr- you know, a tremendous amount of evil to?" You know, probably the the correct answer is I don't know. I really don't know. I've never thought about the question like that. But I think it has something to do, and I'm thinking as I'm talking to you, Ezra. I think it has something to do with the broad dispersal of of, of the possibility of happiness, and not having pockets of people who you tolerate cruelty towards and building that happiness in the least exploitative way possible. So maybe I've worked myself into a, into a definition. Um, I think the state exists to enable as much happiness as possible for as many people as possible in the least exploitative and cruel way as possible. Something like that.
2: Yeah, I like that. I mean, I've I just... I, I also just came up with this question on the on the spot, so I don't think I have a great answer either, but the only the only thing that my gut answer is the state exists to make collective action possible and i I know that's like too weak, but like that's like the first thing that I always think like the thing that people miss in the state it's collective, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think people often want to outsource things to the state, mm-hmm. like you do it, mm-hmm. and like that's very like that's very I, I was thinking about this a bit because. I actually think Donald Trump has in his own head a very distinctive view of what the state is there to do, right? There's a lot of things the state does that he just doesn't care about. But like what Donald Trump wanted the state to do for him is to keep him safe and keep him feeling powerful Mm. and allow for the accumulation of his wealth and power. And he was mad whenever that didn't happen, whenever like it felt to him like he was in danger or his his people, as he defined it, were being disrespected or something like that. Like, so, so you have this line in Between the World and Me where you say that the power of domination and exclusion is central to the belief in being white. And, and I was thinking about that because I just reread it last night to, to talk to you. and And I was thinking as I read that line, which is a strong fucking line— Trump is now the word he has fastened on is domination. Mm-hmm. Like that is literally the word he is choosing to come back to and back to. He's using it in speeches, he's using it in tweets. He just like has it as his own sentence in a tweet today, right? Like like the like we did it in DC It's just domination. And I think for him, the state is about domination. And mm. I think the state should be about collective action and and probably in the direction that that you do, but. I think it's really different to imagine the state as enabling people to do things together rather than like imposing order on them. Yeah. And owning yeah. violence. And I just I've been thinking a lot during this just how much are in like there are two things I think we've seen that are are coming together in a weird way right now. You just brought up essential workers. It's like mm-hmm. what work do we think of as essential in the economy? A lot of it is care work, right? A lot of it is care work that we don't treat that well. But like we've we've developed in a weird way now a working definition of who is essential, um, and it's not who we treat as essential. So like we've learned something about the economy that we already should have known, and, and I think you see right here with Trump and 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 what you're seeing on TV at night. It's like what do we really think the state is, or at least how does some portion of us really like the state is here to impose order by monopolizing the use of violence mm-hmm. and it's like is that really what we want it to be i think is a really good and important question for us to be asking
1: you know the other thing i like about that definition that you just gave is uh, and i know you've talked about this you know on the podcast you you've expressed several times um your discomfort with a the the the, the, the phraseology social distancing um the way and i've been thinking about this a lot the way we wag our finger at people who are not, you know, socially distancing. And I, I, I say that to say that I think the philosophy, if there's been an overriding one, um, for how we've combated COVID, which is still here, still out there, um, is, no, you do it. You do it. You do it. You do it. Um, you wear your mask. You, you know, uh, stay six six feet apart. You don't go to this place. You don't, and and not the very weed that you're talking about. It 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 it's it's really you know. There's this thing. You know, we were talking about this idea of the public, the damage that you know. I think you know. Well, we know very well. You know, the dam. When somebody says that they want to drain, you know, shrink government to the size that they can, you know, drain it into a you know a bathtub. You know, that that's pretty obvious. But I think Democrats have you know largely made a mistake by adopting that frame. Um, and where I saw it clearest, and I couldn't connect the two until, you know, I, I, I got it down, I spent a lot of time writing about respectability politics, and you know, and I don't even like that term, but for right now, that's the one we'll use, and how Obama, you know, advanced that idea repeatedly. And I never got during his administration what I disliked about it. And it wasn't until now, in the midst of coronavirus, that I got, and that is that though the state and the society and the country. And the nation have created a condition in African American communities. The logic of respectability politics says that they are not responsible for it, that we are not, in fact, responsible to each other or for each other. And the people living in that community, if they would do individual things, you do it, pull your pants up, that that would ultimately, you know, uh, 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 somehow not even, and I don't wanna, you know, caricature his answer but that, that would solve the problem, and then you saw this you know coming up with you know uh trump surgeon general you know talking about do it for your whale or do it for your pop pop and that's when the idea that these little individual actions can actually uh um ultimately oppose and solve for big huge public health problems and I think like what, what, what that sort of vocabulary does is it damages the idea of a public itself you know and so finally you know we when you see a situation where you want to call upon a large group of people to do something collectively while well, you've elected somebody who got there you know if not through the rhetoric of of destroying you know a public certainly you know advanced by a party you know who 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 believed in that idea and so you know when he gets in office doesn't treat you know the 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 the, uh, the institutions you know of public health with any respect cuz he don't believe in any public and there's nobody around him who actually believes in any public. They believe in dominance. Believe in domination. You know. Um, and in many cases, the very people who you know are nominally opposed to him, or legitimately—let me not be cynical—legitimately opposed, don't really realize the extent that they've actually helped advance the idea that we are not responsible to each other. And so I, I just I I think that idea of collective action, of together. You know, the thing I always tell people, you know, about, say, a policy like reparations, you know, people, you know, mock it, ha, 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 well, who's gonna, you know, pay for it? We pay for it. We. I mean, me too. (laughs) I mean, my tax dollars too. I mean, we, we pay for it, you know? Um, As opposed to, you know, boiling this down, you know, this idea of what individual white person is going to pay what individual black person. You know and and I think that that's not just true of reparations, but true you know in, in a broader sense, we've gone through a long period over the past you know uh 50 years that you know you've identified in terms of you know you know polarization, but also just in many ways, if you include you know what we've say, seen over the past week or so straight up war making you know between people um, and not even between people, you know from one group against another. You know, to advance the idea that 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 chaos and war is the norm. There is no collective. You know, there is no uh, together. That you know, if the virus is just in New York City, that's fine. That's okay. You know, um, and so I would be, you know, obviously all for you know uh, an idea the state that that you know put forth a you know a greater notion of, of community and, and, and public action.
2: One of the things you're talking about, I feel like, when you talk about the public, it's just a connection it just made for me. is I mentioned this guy, Patrick Skinner, a couple minutes ago. Is this police officer in, in Georgia. Who I, I followed on Twitter for years um, uh, because he just... Just tweets about police work in a very different way than than I've heard it talked about before. But one of the things that he talks a lot about is what he calls just like the neighbor mindset, and he always calls like everybody he's dealing with like in the way he discusses it is like neighbors. And so I asked him in this interview, like just like what do you mean by that? Like what is a neighbor mindset? And it's it's kind of so simple, Um, and he just says like I know it's kind of cheesy, but. He says, like, we all matter. None of us do. Like, I live here. I can't know everybody, but I call everyone my neighbor because they literally are. And I can't put my knee on the neck of my neighbor. Right. And the thing that, like, I think is powerful in the idea of the public that you're putting forward or the idea of neighbors that he's putting forward is that, like, how we view people and our relationships to them really, really matter. And just the thing that is so, so clear, right, is that the police who are at those protests, of, like, the right-wing anti-mask long-gun people, sort of, like, those people were considered in the public. And so the police showed up, like, without riot gear and just, like, in their little, like, kind of cloth masks. And, you know, like, they were there to keep some order, but, like, they were there sort of constructively, it seemed. Um, and then when you look at the police who are massing in front of these protests in riot and SWAT gear... Like, I get to some degree even, like, why they're doing it, but, like, they send a message. Like, they are not walking in there with the sense that everybody's on the same side, that you're all neighbors. They're part of the public that is protesting and is upset that they have a stake in this, too. Like, over there is the threat. And the thing Skinner keeps talking about is, you know, people want this to be a training problem, but it's not a training problem. He says, like, we train for the thing that we are valuing, and what we value is this idea that we are in a war on crime. And, like, when you treat your neighbors as an— opposing army or an insurgency like you when you train for war you act like you're in war right. and so like it, it seems i think like like cheesy stuff a bit this question of like who do we include in our ideas of the public or who do we include our ideas of who's a neighbor but it i think it's really really important it's like so at the base of everything
1: yeah no i think i think, you're, I think you're, you're right i mean it's probably too late for this but the thing that immediately occurred to me is just a basic thought, thought experiment. And again, it may well be too late for this, but if you imagine a police force that doesn't show up in riot gear, do people feel okay throwing stones? Do people feel okay throwing things at them? Like, is, is that, like, or do they react differently? I guess what I'm saying is when you deploy in the armor and weaponry of war, is that in and of itself a provocation? I think people hearing this might say, "Well, adhering to this idea of the you know the, the the monopoly on violence of the state, well, you know the police have to make this show a force, but do they? Do they? I'm I'm not sure. I'm not certain that's true. You know, I mean, I I know at the very least, that, you know, the, the hypothesis has never been tested. You know, it, all I know is in the communities I grew up in." And in everyone I know who is close to me, people view calling the police as the thing of absolute last resort. I used to live at One Thirty Seven and Broadway. It was a very, you know, at that point, ungentrified area of Harlem. And there was a club right across the street from us. Um, and every Friday night, it would get rowdy and it would, without fail, spill out into the streets and folks would start fighting, right? And I was away one night. Uh, when we first moved up there and my wife called and she said, I'm really worried about, you know, what's going on. I'm worried about people talking about going to get guns, da, 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 da. Should I call the police? It's absolutely not. Absolutely not. Do not call the police. If you if you want to see someone get a gun, if you want to see the possibility of shooting, call the police. And what I said to her is, and, and this is, you know, what, what ended up happening. I'm sorry, I probably didn't say this. Too. I think it's what actually happened. There were some older folks who lived on the block, some older men, and they defused the situation. They diffuse the situation. It would be nice if you had some sort of official, you know, some sort of representative of the state, or maybe not. Maybe not even a representative of the state. If folks who already exist in in, in those organic spaces within the community, you know, maybe you are were empowered, you know, better to 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 to, to diffuse situations. Folks that we already, you know, trusted to begin with. The other thing is we deploy the police for so much. I keep going back to this. Like when I think about what these folks died over. Was a $20 counterfeit bill that may or may not have been intentionally used worth eight minutes of torturing somebody? Was it worth it? Was it what horrendous crime were you solving or trying to prevent when you kicked down Brianna Taylor's door in the middle of the night, guns blame? What what was what was the thing? Atiana Jefferson, like, what was the tremendous thing where, you know, the neighbor calls because the door is open? What, what was the grave threat that you faced that caused you to fire in to the windows? The, the, the brother's name I'm, I'm escape, you know, is escaping me right now, who just got killed in, in Louisville during the protest. What was the grave threat that you were combating that caused you to deploy lethal force? We, we, we do it so easily and, and, and so casually and, and so habitually. And again, you know, the only thing that's making me feel somewhat good about this moment is going back to this concept of neighbor. It is quite clear that in cities around the country, there is at least a critical mass of people who look at George Floyd and say, that's my neighbor. That's my neighbor down there. And this is intolerable. This can't continue. I think that's a little different.
2: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I do think if there's any any. Good thing here. It, it really is that you know it's funny, you're making me think of a story that that I heard in DC. I had a friend who owned a bunch of bars there, or didn't or ran a bunch of bars there, I should say. And um he told me once that when he was younger and he did this, he when he was hiring for a bouncer, he would always hire like the biggest, baddest looking guy he could. And that he learned it was a mistake. That if drunk idiots, like saw a giant bouncer at the door pretty often like some drunk idiot would want to test Mm them they would like see it as some kind of a threat and it like often escalated in fights and he began hiring just really normal looking people to to work the door and it just stopped like by not creating the by not having the initial interaction where there is a sense of threat a sense of domination right you're not going to do anything because we can stop you I'm not saying that would work for literally every place, but it is what he found. And also there's like a really interesting story, like how you walk into a situation, what you structure in it, it really does affect what you get out of it. What you're saying is sort of similar to along the lines I've been thinking on. It's not that nobody's tried this before, but we don't do it at a national level. I do wish there was someone I could call for a problem who wouldn't come with a gun, right? right. That like if I right. saw somebody in danger— or I saw something like uh, you know like sometimes you'll be walking by and you'll see people I, I I saw some people fighting on the street the other night and I thought to myself like I should call someone to make sure this doesn't get out of hand and then I realized like I didn't want to call the police because it was like it was two homeless guys and I didn't want them arrested like they were having a problem but I I thought their night would get worse um and, like, there are, you know, whatever, some people around who looked like they could stop it if it needed to be stopped. But if there was somebody I could call for something going wrong who I knew was just a mediator, just, like, unbelievably skilled at de-escalating situations, I would feel much more comfortable making that call. Right. And I don't see right. a reason we couldn't create that. I mean, people are talking about defunding or abolishing the police, which, you know, we we, we were discussing earlier. But there's also this question of what would you create, and I think we might just need some institutions that are as central to how the government thinks of itself as the police are, but are not built upon a skill with violence.
1: I An mean, obvious one is in mental health, right? I mean, so many of yes. these cases, you know what I mean? Where a, and it's like, why should police be mental health workers? Should people with guns basically, should, should we be calling people with guns to deal with mental health? You know, um, and why? Like that's the thing that always occurs to me. And why? Why? Like, what sort of society have we built that that's the case? You know. And do the people?
2: Who, I mean, also, you get what you hire for, and right. <laughs> I, I don't mean this in any bad way, and like, there are a lot of great police police folks out there, but I don't think people become police because they want to deal with mental health problems. <laughs> right. There are people who like. Go to school and like what they want to do is help people with mental health problems. But we don't have a group of them who all of us know from the time we're five years old, the three-digit number you call to deploy them. Right. And I really think like this is what it would mean to imagine a society built on a value of nonviolence, right? Built on a value of de-escalation. Right? You would have organizations like that. You like like the state would not have a monopoly on, but would have a specific and special competency in, like people who knew how to help others with mental health. So when those folks were having a really bad night for them and for others, there would be someone forgiving and gentle and calm. Like the person you would want to be called out there if it was your sibling with bipolar disorder who had lost the thread and was like wandering around.
1: Yeah.
2: And needed someone.
1: The example I always think about is when I was a kid, there was a, a kid in my in, in my neighborhood, um, and he <laughs> was having all sorts of issues. Turned out he was being abused by his dad and you know, actually ended up killing his dad um because of that. But um he was known to have a temper and uh, you know, act sort of crazy. And there was, you know, one time he got into one of my brother's friends and the kid basically, you know, was in front of my house, and uh, my brother trying to defuse it. My older brother brought him into the house, and the kid was picking up a metal stake. He pulled a metal stake out of the ground, like they were doing some construction or something. He started swinging it in the air, and my dad came out to defuse the kid to get the kid to, you know, basically stop and uh, you know, go back, go back home, or go, go wherever. If my dad had pulled out a gun and shot that kid because he was swinging a stake at people, we would have thought that was crazy. Everyone on that block would have been horrified by that. And he wouldn't be able to, if he said, I was in fear of my life or I was in fear of the lives of other people around me, they would have said, So you shot him? You shot him? That's what you did because you were afraid? You shot him? And yet, you know, we have basically written it into, you know, case law. That's okay. It, it's, a, it's a crazy idea. <laughs> it's a crazy idea. The people who have the most power, that because, you know what I mean, you feel afraid and like you can kill someone. Um, it's a, and I guess in, you know, some stand your ground cases that, you know, you don't even have to be a cop to make that argument. You know, I, I, I don't know why, you know, why I have some theories for what we can't employ that that basic, you know, sort of logic. And again, I think we're getting closer to it though. I think we're getting closer to it.
2: you can tell me if not, but but can I get you to talk about the Tony Jutt lecture you gave a couple, I don't know, a year back now?
1: Yeah, sure. You go ahead and refresh it, me I on the part, though, but go ahead.
2: I think it relates to this. Like the thing in in that um lecture about the branding of the letter M and what people can and can't see as a crime. Because I, I do think when you, when you say that, right, like, what stops us? I mean, part of what stops us is what we're socially taught to see and not see. Yeah. Part of what stops us, I mean, as you're saying, right, if your dad had shot him, you'd be like, what the fuck? What the fuck, dude? And then what if a that? policeman comes <laughs> and, like, somebody is swinging a pipe at them and they get tased 40 times or, you know, I mean, there, there's a question of what we see as a crime, um, and I think something about this moment is we're seeing more things than we did. And so the worst ones get seen as a crime. But a lot of the ones that aren't that bad, I think in another society would be seen as insane. You yeah. know, like the, like, I mean, the, what happened to George Floyd is like, it's a slow murder by torture, as you said. But there's a lot we're taught to see as okay. Right. And I think like, the, I love that speech you gave because I think it, it it speaks to that social construction of like when we notice something it's not just immoral but like a threat to order and when we don't
1: yeah i it, it's kind of sad um but you know we 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 have so much work to do because the, the what people often forget is the idea of criminality is directly tied in with 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 slavery and, and enslavement um it, it it's constitutional you know it's written you know in you know a uh, constitution that you know our original fugitive slave clause which effectively says, if anybody you know aids an enslaved person in pursuing that which everybody else in the society is trying to pursue—that is their freedom—that person is necessarily a, a criminal. Uh, one of the earliest arguments that folks would make against communities of runaway slaves um, in Canada was that they were havens of criminality. You know, arguments made for enslavement that, well, if I if we don't do this. To this group of people, they will naturally resort to crime. All through Jim Crow, long, long history of justifying segregation by saying these people are criminals, arguing against, you know, uh, blaming, you know, uh, 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 civil rights protests, saying these are the actions of outside agitators and black criminals. Um, J. Edgar Hoover, you know, once again, viewing Martin Luther King as a criminal, you know, backing up a little bit. The society itself viewing Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman as. Criminals, um, as you know, Frederick Douglass, you know, so sarcastically said, for having stolen his own body. This has effects when, 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 the society repeatedly tells itself that a group of people doing things that everybody else ordinarily does, when that group of people do it, they are somehow criminals. Um, so that you know, you you get to a point where you know you, you have Joe Biden who's going to the right. Uh, actually of Bush or bragging about being to the right, you know, of Bush in the early nineties in terms of, of the crime bill in terms of not just the number of cops he's gonna put on the street, but the number of jails we need to build, the number of, you know, crimes we need to make eligible for the death penalty. Um and I'm and you know in this case, I mean he's running for president, but I'm not singling out Biden, you know, um on the contrary, I'm saying it was so deep in the bones to speak this way. You know, for Biden, you know, to say one of the things I'm trying to do is is lock Willie Horton up. That was a natural thing to say, because when you've already got a portrait of a group of people, it's somehow innately tied to criminal, branded with, with, with the letter "M." you know, as I was talking about in that lecture, there's a, um, a woman who's escaped slavery, and in an ad, you know, for this woman that, 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 that the slave master is, is you know working so that he can retrieve this woman you know uh he obviously goes on about how she needs to be pursued and caught and when you know he writes how you know someone would recognize he casually says i marked her with the letter m or i branded her with the letter m now here's somebody who in any other situation we would recognize as having committed a criminal act against somebody assaulted somebody but in this case the person who's been assaulted and is trying to escape from the situation is the actual criminal that Man, that haunts us. That haunts us. It's in our pop culture. It's in our movies. It's in our books. It's in it. It's it's in everything. It's in our political dialogue, and and it haunts us, you know. So that you know, once again, again, we we become tolerant of these horrendous acts of, 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 of violence against people that we would be, you know, appalled, you know, to see if they were, you know, enacted on 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 somebody else, you know. And, and I think. See, and that to me is beyond the work of electoral politics. How do you unwind that? How do you get to a place where you have, you know, a critical mass and hopefully a majority of non-black people in this country who don't look at black folks and, you know, are more likely to think, you know, innate criminal w- when they see them? You know, that that you you have to get to a very, very, you know, uh, different place. The, the obvious retort to that, you know, that, you know, some right-wing folks would say, well, when black people stop committing... The majority of crimes, but even you know, in in that argument is the acceptance of that—that that somehow that's that's about them, <laughs> that black people, that something about them specifically is causing it, as opposed to looking at it and saying this is a group of people who we've made black. This is a group of people who we've put you know into a condition who are within an environment and asking, well, what is it about the environment that's causing this to be you know the case in the first place?
2: There's a real way in which Joe. Biden makes me hopeful about this. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden is weird. He's like a he's like a he's like the control group of American politics. Mm. He's been in it so long. Right. And he's kind of always been in the center of his party. Right. He's like right so, at the
1: center on every issue. Exactly. Everything.
2: And so looking at the way he's changed, you can see the way politics around him is changing, right? Like that conversation mm-hmm. we're having earlier about. There's work being done, like inside to pass the bill. Like Biden is already is always like right there on that work inside to pass the bill, and then he also slowly is reacting to what is happening outside, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what mm-hmm. where is the the culture? And people are making this point. Um, the New York Times had a good piece on this that if you looked at his first video about the George Floyd killing and then the the protests that had turned violent, it just didn't have any of the. On the one hand, on the other hand, like you know the order is important but so is the mm. like it was just straightforward mm. right like there has been a murder committed by police and like that is the cause of this like even more so than the way obama would talk about things like this a couple of years back yeah and you just yeah. and like and, and if you look at biden's even just platform now, right? His policies, right? This guy was a partial author of the crime bill. I mean, the crime bill, like people like, if I'm like, Bernie Sanders voted for the crime bill, right? Like that was a consensus document in American politics. And like, now it is like the whole thing is moving away from it, including Joe Biden. And so there's this way in which you really see in him that, yeah, like something is changing. I mean, and that is another reason why when people are like, it's going to be like 1968. I mean, I don't know what it will be like, but it's going to be like 2020 because right, it, it is like 1968.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's right, you know? And, you know, I, you know, I say this as somebody who's been, you know, very openly critical of Biden. But, you know, when you when you go into, like we have this idea of elections as this kind of, this hallowed sort of space, this sacred ritual that, that one is undertaking, um, that you should be inspired and in love with, with, with the candidate. And maybe some of that is, you know, uh, the, the emotion that was wrapped up, you know, in, in voting for Obama in 2008. But I, I often think, you know, people need to think about it more like, you know, taking out the trash. It's a thing that you should do, brushing your teeth. It's hygiene. It's, and it's not all of politics. You know, um, it's it's a portion of it that you need, you know, uh, uh, to do. And so, you know, when you think about who you're going to vote for, for me, at least, the question isn't how much of my own personal politics do I see in this person, so much as how much do I think this person can actually be influenced by my politics or the politics of the people around me? And it's clear Trump won't be at all. Like at all, like not at all. You know what I mean? Like I, then it, then it, you know, becomes crystal clear. I don't need like, like you know what I mean? I like, I can loudly say, you know, all the things Joe Biden was wrong on, and feel no compunction whatsoever, any sort of guilt or bad feeling about voting for him, because I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Like that's oh, yeah, not the totally. end of my politics. Like me casting a presidential vote is not the totality of my political action within a society if that makes sense
2: no I mean and, and it's a it's like if you think of politics as like a big funnel right like the casting the presidential vote is like the very end of the funnel by the time mm-hmm. you're there there are only mm-hmm. two choices mm-hmm. like really mm-hmm. and so there's so little movement there and it's right. like there's so much movement in so many other parts look joe biden um he was not my like first second or third choice in the Democratic primary if I'm being right. honest I don't right. have huge things against him, but he's not my, you know, he's not the candidate who I thought, like, saw the situation most clearly. But when I'm, I have not been feeling super optimistic lately about life, but in terms of the the election, something that I think is interesting about him and maybe is a good match for this moment is here you have a candidate who I think to a lot of people compared to Donald Trump and really compared to even the other folks in the Democratic field, he is going to represent a kind of a kind of calm stability familiarity and continuity and he is going to marry that with also being the candidate who believes that the path to that is more humane approaches to policing is racial justice is taking hopefully structural inequality seriously like when you listen to the speeches he's giving right now you know they're they're a, they're much more progressive on these things than Democrats really have ever been before like I'm- ever And yet he's the old white guy who's been in politics forever, who like doesn't, you know, and I don't think it is not a good thing that those two things need to be married together. Like, you know, it is not a good thing that Joe Biden has so much more running room on what he can say than Cory Booker does. Like, it really isn't. But in this moment, the fact that the person who believes that there should be justice here is also the person who people associate maybe with calm. Right. I think is a... I think it's a good thing,
1: right? 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 Yeah. No, I, I, I don't. I don't. I really don't know how. Um, I really don't know how this plays out. You know, but I, I think, um, we are very much in an unprecedented moment, and I think you know, uh, direct analogs, you know, to other period periods don't don't quite work. It's just, you know, the, the the Democratic Party is so different demographically. It's it's completely different than it was even twenty five years ago. Um you know i was one of these people who felt that what would happen is you know uh, you know viewing whiteness as not a um biological question but a political question by which i mean the you know groups of people ethnic groups who are sometimes welcomed within the you know tent of whiteness in one moment and are not in, in another I guess it was my belief that what the Republican Party would do you know almost cynically or what the conservative movement would do almost cynically is that it would make room for other people under the umbrella of whiteness as it you know as you know this country has done at other moments in history, and that's kind of not what's happened <laughs> you know on the contrary, under Trump, they've just you know you know uh doubled down you know on the race and made it more clear maybe than it was under Bush, probably you know more clear than it was under Bush that this is a white party. This is a white party. And so what that means necessarily then is that the Democratic Party is very, very different. I don't think Stacey Abrams, you know, even though she didn't win, getting as close as she did, is really imaginable 25 years ago. Um, you just, you, the, the demographics of things and the very nature of what the two parties are and particularly what the Democratic Party are is, it's, I mean, you have a, a, a old white guy who, you know, it has to be said, basically was dependent on the black vote I, I think I can say that, and you know i guess the dirty oh, i don't secret, think there's
2: any doubt about it
1: yeah right you know what i mean and and I guess the dirty secret of it is you know uh whatever bernie sanders' appeal was ultimately dependent on the white working class vote too you know um that's that's a you know a very very different thing, even within a democratic primer than it would have been twenty five years ago
2: I think that's like a good good place to to bring this in um I will say, I did not exactly expect to, to talk to you and feel more hopeful, but I do. I feel better than when we started talking, which I appreciate. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> Me of
1: all people, the last person in the world. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You've been on the show before. I'm not going to ask you for books. but
1: I have books, if you like. I came prepared.
2: Oh, yeah. I'll take them. And I'm also going to ask you to recommend a book of poetry because I've been trying to read more poetry and I know you do or have I at least. I can do
1: that too. Yeah. yeah, yeah all yeah, right. Yeah. Let's do some books. Okay, so the 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 two uh, non poetry books that I, I think about is uh, "Punishment and Inequality in America" by Bruce Western, um, which is about you know it's old at this point it was published in two thousand seven, but still probably you know, the best survey that I can think of of how we got to this um, position that that we, that we 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 we've been in terms of the carceral state um, through the lens of uh, uh, sociology and how you know it's been built to. A shocking degree, you know, on the backs of Black people and poor Black people. If you want the numbers, you know, for it, um, and they haven't changed terribly that much in the past, you know, uh, ten or almost fifteen years. Um, I, I still think that's a just a just a masterwork. My friend uh, Diva Pager, who passed. And wrote an, an an incredible book. A book that's been very influential in my thinking. And when I was at uh, the Atlantic, I would just cite this book R- religiously. "Marked Race, Crime, and Finding Work in the Era of Mass Incarceration." And what Diva did, you know, I always tell people is, on some level, you know, being black in this country, we understand certain things about the country and how it works. And what Diva was able to do, which was very difficult, was to design a sociological experiment to demonstrate it empirically. You know, And the key finding that she basically made was that when you look at black people or you look at white people, I'm going to try to get this right, you look at white males who are high school dropouts, black people who are also high school dropouts, no matter whether they have you know, a, a, a criminal record or not, are looked upon as though they do. This is a huge, huge conclusion. It goes back to you know, that, that, that letter M thing I was talking about, that it really didn't matter whether you had you know committed a crime or had a crime, even those who did not were viewed as criminals by employers. And this obviously has large implications in terms of who we jail uh and what uh uh um our system looks like in terms of work. Um the book of poetry I'm gonna recommend is Carolyn Forche's uh The Country Between Us. As we had we had a conversation about this, you know, about another project. And I was making the point that I think people underestimate the power of writing um, in terms of why certain arguments stick and, and and why they don't. I've always said that my you know, objective as, as, as a writer is not merely to uh, write in such a way um, that people read it and they say, yeah, I think that's correct. Um, it's to write in such a way that people are haunted, that they go to bed thinking about it, that they wake up thinking about it, that they tell their spouses about it, that they tell their children about it and their friends about it. And they, you know, grab them by the arm and say, you have to read this. To the extent that, you know, I've been able to try to practice that. The place I learned it was poetry and probably, you know, maybe not the, the earliest poet to have that kind of influence on me who I find myself going back to repeatedly. But one of them is definitely Carolyn Fouché and her book, The Country Between Us.
2: All right, I'm going to definitely pick that up. And that, I will tell you, that conversation actually had a big effect on me. I've been trying to think a lot more about this. Um, Tan, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Azra.
2: Thank you to Tanahasi Coast for being here. Thank you to Jackson Bierfeld for engineering, to Bert Pinkerton for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. The Azra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast
1: production.